Hello, and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon, and it is Monday here in New York City. I hope everyone is safe and healthy during these very difficult times. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier today with the head men's basketball coach at St. John's University in Minnesota, Pat McKenzie. But first, I feel like I need to address what happened across America this past weekend. In response to the murder of George Floyd, an unarmed black man in Minneapolis last Tuesday by the police, America said enough. There were major protests in almost every American city, including Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, Louisville, Seattle, Miami, Washington, D.C., and my hometown of New York. These protests were filled with thousands of people calling for the end of police brutality, calling for justice to be done with respect to George Floyd, and calling most importantly and most critically for change. Change in America does not happen overnight by some outside force. Change in America happens when the people decide the way we are operating as a country is not good enough, that it is not up to the standard and the ideas that this nation was founded upon. And when those ideas from our founding fathers were decided to be no longer up to par with what is fundamentally right, we protested, we fought, we demanded, and we received that change. To put it very simply, the people in this country of every race and ethnicity have recognized that the way black people in this country are treated by the police is wrong and un-American and needs to change. People are tired of the status quo. The status quo needs to change to where black people in America are not afraid when a police car is behind them driving, be afraid when they are in a store, afraid of being targeted because of their skin color by the police. The first step in solving any problem is admitting there is one. I think people have known that this was a problem but it is clear from this weekend that we as a country have admitted police brutality is a problem and we are ready to confront it. I don't know what is going to happen next. I don't know what the best way to move forward is. I don't know what the best exact policies going forward are. The only thing I do know is that one of the greatest things about America is every citizen's ability to vote. And I think more than ever, we are seeing the power of voting and just how important it is. While it is crucially important to vote for the president, it is even more important to vote in local elections. In these elections, we can vote for the people who can bring about actual change and progress in individual communities. And if there isn't a candidate who can bring about that change, we have to nominate a different one. We need to find and vote for the people who can win these elections and create change from these positions of power. It is not enough to just have any Democrat in charge or any Republican in charge. What matters are the individuals that we choose to represent us in government. If you haven't done so already, I couldn't encourage anyone listening more to register to vote. Encourage your friends to register. And if you are a coach, hold a team meeting over Zoom to talk about these issues and listen to your players. Be an ally and a resource for them. Help them register to vote. And on November 3rd, don't have practice. Have a team community service trip where you all volunteer to help get out the vote. That will be much more meaningful and impactful than any type of drill that you can run and practice that day. I've been doing Recommendation Corner on the pod, and I usually recommend a book or a TV show. And I have two books this week that I highly recommend everyone read who is interested in learning more about these issues. 
The first is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which describes the criminal justice system and just how broken it is. The second is Between the World and Me by, by Todd Nahesi Coates, which is a book written in the format of a letter by the author to his son about what being black in America is like. Reading these books myself as a white person was uncomfortable, but more importantly, it was thought-provoking. By facing these uncomfortable truths, I feel like I am a much different person than I was five years ago, and I am looking forward to reading and listening more to people talk about these issues so that I can continue to improve my understanding and be an ally and to do my part in bringing about this positive change. As uncomfortable as it may be to confront these issues, these are the uncomfortable conversations we need to be having to move forward, so I highly recommend those books. Usually on the double-double, I like to stick to sports, but this is far too important of an issue to not talk about and to pretend like it's not happening or is relevant to sports in any way. Lastly here before we get to the interview, when I was in the 8th grade, I was on the JV basketball team in my high school. The coach at the time recognized that the new guys on the team, the freshmen and the 8th graders, had never played with the shot clock before. So we all stood in a circle in silence as 35 seconds went by to show us how long we had to get a shot off. I think that we could do something similar here on this podcast as it worked so well for me and my teammates back then for something so meaningless in the grand scheme of things of understanding just how long 35 seconds is. I think we could do something similar here to show just how long nine minutes is. Nine minutes is the same amount of time that the police officer in Minneapolis had his knee on George Floyd's neck while he was killing him. By having a silence for nine minutes, I believe will really demonstrate the brutality of that police officer's actions, as well as how short it is. That, all, that only in nine minutes, a life can be taken and a moment created.
my interview with coach Pat McKenzie after this. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head men's basketball coach at St. John's University in Minnesota, Pat McKenzie. He played his college ball at St. John's, following in his father's footsteps, and led the Mayak in assists as a senior. After graduating in 2004, he promptly began his coaching career, spending two seasons as the director of basketball operations for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and then Coach McKenzie returned to the, to the Division Three game in the summer of 2006 as an assistant coach at his alma mater. After nine years as an assistant and recruiting coordinator, he was promoted to head coach after Jim Smith retired after 51 years of coaching St. John's. In Coach McKenzie's five years at the helm, he has compiled a 111-28 and record, including three straight NCAA tournament appearances. In the 2019-2020 season, he helped lead the Johnnies to the Sweet 16, a 27-2 and record, and finished as the number two team in the final D3Hoops.com national rankings. I'm absolutely thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going great. Appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, so, let, so let's kind of just go back to the beginning, uh, c- kind of just talk, talk a little bit about where you grew up and kind of how you started uh, playing and falling in love with the game of basketball. Sure. I'm, you know, I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin originally. And, um, you know, as you alluded to in that intro, uh, you know, my, my dad played hoops. And so we just kind of grew up um, loving basketball, watching basketball. I, I was fortunate as well. You know, my, my time growing up coincided with uh, Dick Bennett, was the head coach at UW-Green uh, Bay, and then Tony played for him there. So we were kind of growing up in the heyday, or I was growing yeah. up in the heyday of, of, of Green Bay basketball. And I, I certainly think looking back, that that was um, stoked the fire, if you will, and you know, like like anybody that winds up playing, you just kind of fall in love with it. It, it becomes a, a, a source where you're meeting a ton of great friends. It, it becomes a social outlet. It becomes a stress reliever. You know, you name it. All those things I think apply to me, and um, and just fell in love with it. And, and I'm lucky to to get to do this for uh, for a career. So as I went through my college development and kind of saw and met people from around the country the Wisconsin high school athletics is I think one of the best in the country and really underrated in a lot of ways nationally kind of just what was your recruiting process like in high school were you a multi-sport athlete and kind of how did you go about picking St. John's for for college well, yeah, you know, I, my, my, my recruitment process wasn't much. I mean, I, I wasn't that good. Um, you know, we had some good high school teams. I wasn't good enough to play multiple sports. I mean, I, I played soccer as a freshman. I, I did run some track as a senior. Mm. Just I got coaxed into it. But I, I, I focused, <laughs> focused heavily on hoops just because um, it was the only way I was going to have a chance to, to play and be any good as if I – you know, poured myself into that mm-hmm. and, you know, had certainly had some interest from, from some local, uh, division three colleges, some of the WIAC schools, some of that Midwest conference. And then, you know, I had a family tie to St. John's and, and that brought me over to Minnesota. So I, I looked at a, lot, a number of the schools here in the MIAC and, you know, when all was said and done, I just fell in love with, with St. John's, fell in love with the campus, fell in love with, uh, with the guys they had on the team at the time. And it just seemed like a good fit. And, and again, I, I knew I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the, the Division three level, that was it for me. That's where I was going to have an opportunity. And, and uh, so I wound up here at St. John's. 
you know, it was a great decision for me. I had, had, had a ton of fun. So as I alluded to at the beginning, St. John's, Minnesota had a legendary coach of its own in Jim Smith. Just what was it like to play for a legendary coach when you were in college? Well, you, you know, it's um, I don't know that that when you're in it, you you fully appreciate, yeah, you know what what that's like, you know, and and certainly as a, a one thing I I knew, and I think everybody um, that played for Smitty would tell you is is you knew he was a good guy. I mean, you knew that he cared about you, and and I think that that is sort of how he he coached. I mean, that would be was a part of his philosophy. He he was himself. Um, he, he, he always saw the big picture and he, he never let uh, the highs get too high or the lows get too low. Right. I, I think, you know, when you played for him, you know, you appreciated that he was not a screamer. Um, you know, my high school coach was, so I, I've seen <laughs> both ends of the spectrum. And, and so that, that was the starkest contrast. I think for me is, is saying, geez, here's a guy that's not yelling at us. And yet, you know, we, we were still winning. Right. Um, and so that, you know, there, there's certainly some lessons that I picked up along the way working for and, and playing for, for Coach Smith. So one thing, as, as I just finished up my senior year of college, is that starting around junior year, senior year, kind of just the vibe of the kids in your grade changes. Everyone starts thinking, oh, my God, what's next? What internship am I doing? What type of career path am, am I going down? It's a big time of, like, self-reflection and also just, frankly, a lot of freaking out. Um just during that time in college, kind of what were you thinking about in terms of a, a career path for you, and, and kind of how did you decide or know that you wanted to become a, a basketball coach? You know, we, we uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, I um, I think my freak out was maybe sophomore year, okay, ish, um, and and I, I had thought in my head that that I was gonna. You know, I wanted to, to teach high school history and, and coach high school basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, really appreciated some of the, the coaches I, I got to, to work with, play for in, in high school. And and then some of the guys I was around, one of my teammates, uh, Ryan Dusha, who's a really successful high school coach here in Minnesota. Um, he was a senior my freshman year. And, and that's what he that's what he's doing. He's, he's yeah. teaching social studies, coaching high school basketball. And I just was drawn to that. Um, I took some education classes here. And, and hated him. I mean, just <laughs> absolutely hated him and thought, oh boy, you know, now what? Yeah. Um, and, and at that point I kind of realized, you know, I, it's, it's the, 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 the coaching, the basketball, that side is really what, what I was drawn to. And I would say at that point, then it shifted and, and, you know, I just, in, in, in my own way thought, you know, I want to be coach Smith. Yeah. Um, I, I want to, I want to coach college basketball. I think that's, that would be a lot of fun, and uh, I think there's a lot of juice in that, and that that's sort of where that path took a turn, if you will, and, and set off to where, where we are now. For sure, yeah. I think that's definitely really interesting because I, I feel like a lot of the advice given to college students is, you know, find what you love, but one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was in the process of finding what, what you think you want to do and, and what you love, make sure you find what you don't want to do early on so that it saves you the time uh, later on. So after graduating from St. John's, you go on, you move back home to Green Bay and you become a universe, you become the director of basketball operations at the university of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And, you know, I'm always curious about this coach as everyone loves saying that the players on the team 
each player has a different role and there's different responsibilities that that come with that role on the team. But on the coaching staff, what types of tasks and responsibilities come with being the director of basketball operations at a Division One school? Well, well, you know, for for me, it was you know doing everything nobody else wanted to do. Gotcha. That that was <laughs> that that those were my jobs. Um, but but they they were so formative for me, and and also I you know I learned so much because of that. You know, mm. I, I had to uh, you know you name it. You know, make sure practice was was set up. I was in charge of our managers. I was in charge of, of making sure all, you know, all the equipment was, um, you know, washed and cleaned and, yeah. and, uh, did our film exchange, you know, would help with certain video breakdown projects, uh, coordinated all of our travel. Um, all those kind of little things, you know, were, were, were what I was in charge of. And then sort of for me, the, the, you know, the, the cherry on top was I got to, you know, be involved in the basketball when, when, when I got that other stuff done. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it was huge in my development to to see all, all sides of the operation. And I worked for a great guy, Ty Kowalczyk, who, who's now the, at the University of Toledo. You know, I, I, I feel so fortunate to have gotten to work for him because I, I learned so much about, you know, what it is to actually be a professional coach. Right. You know, make this your living and, and learn the business side of basketball. And um so during those two years, I mean, it was, you, you talk about a crash course in uh, college coaching, that, right. that's what it was. And it was, it was awesome. I mean, I, I love that experience. So after two seasons at UW-Green Bay, you returned to your alma mater, St. John's, as an assistant coach. Just kind of what went into the decision to move back down from the Division One level back down to the D3 ranks? Well, you, you know, I, I thought it was a great opportunity um, to... You know, Coach Smith at, at that time was was getting older, and, and you sort of knew um, he was closing in on retirement. And, and I just felt like, you know, if I came back and could help um, help him, you know, sort of transition through, that that would potentially put me in a good spot to uh, to become the head coach. Mm-hmm. And I just saw that as a, as a terrific opportunity to. To be able to do that and, and to be back in a place, you know, I, I obviously have an affinity for St. John's. And, yeah. Um, you know, it, was, it, it, it just seemed like the right opportunity at the right time. And, um, you know, so that, that that's what that's what happened. And and as you mentioned, as he was going towards the tournament, I, I think if, if I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the year you came back to be an assistant was his 42nd season as being uh, the head coach of St. John's. And obviously you had the experience of playing for Coach Smith, but that was a player-coach relationship. But what were some of the types of things you learned from Coach Smith during your time as an assistant now that your relationship had evolved from a head coach to assistant coach that kind of helped you uh, as you were embarking on your own college career? Well, you know, I think you get to see behind the curtain a little bit. Um, I think you, you, you know, and, and, and again, I, I was so fortunate. He, he allowed me to, to be involved in everything. Right. Um, you know, so I, I got to, you know, and, and not that I got to make those decisions, but I got to be involved in the decision process and see how, see how he made them. And, and, uh, very rarely was, was, was I not included in, in those things. And, and again, um, didn't necessarily make the decisions or even get, <laughs> the decisions made that I, that I was pushing for, but I got to see the process. Right. And I think that was really uh, a huge part. And what, what I think is interesting is that, um, 
even as a player, then, then you see it as a coach, you, you very much saw what you got. Right. Um, that, that he, you know, that, that care he had for his guys was genuine, that, um, you know, he, he always kept the big picture in mind, all, all those things we talked about earlier, you still saw him as a coach. And I think that, 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 that was really rewarding to be able to kind of see behind the curtain and realize, Hey, that this is, this is the guy, you know, we thought he was. And, and, uh, yeah, like as you can imagine, learned learned a ton from that experience. So, Coach, one thing that really stuck out to me while researching for this podcast was that you were an assistant at St. John's for nine seasons, and this is pretty rare in the world of Division Three coaching. As assistants tend to bounce around from program to program as they gain experience and they kind of hunt for open uh, head coaching positions. We're even seeing it now in Division One a lot of times. Guys are bouncing around a lot more as we see the uh, the guys who were waiting in the wings at Duke for so many years have now left for the job at Northwestern or Marquette or Pitt. Just kind of why did you stay at St. John's as an assistant for so long? And did you ever think about leaving or have an opportunity to go be a head coach elsewhere? Yeah, well, you know, I think that that you you know you alluded to that. I think the, the, the profession, as far as coaching, there there is a lot of moving around. Yeah, and um, that that sort of comes with the territory. So so, you know, I've been fortunate again that that I haven't had to uh, uproot myself or move a whole lot up to this point. Um, and there there certainly there were a couple of, of uh, opportunities that presented themselves as an assistant. Um, you know, some of those wound up being uh things that turned down and frankly some of those wound up i didn't get the job yeah um you know so it it, it wasn't as though i was just 100 percent never going to leave but 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 it was going to take the right spot to 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 get me to because again gotcha. you know i had been you know comfortable enough here that that feeling like if i continued to do a good job um the opportunity to, be, to become the head coach here was 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 gonna you know it was gonna take place and so knowing that, having that sort of carrot, if you will, um, I knew this was a great job mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and valued the opportunity to be able to, to, to become the head coach here. And that opportunity comes as in March of 2015, Coach Smith announces his retirement, and a month later you are formally promoted to be the new head coach of, uh, of St. John's. Just how did you deal with that initial wave of expectation and and maybe even some pressure taking over for for Coach Smith. Yeah, I mean, you you. It's um, I think when you're in it, it's 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 hard it's hard to explain. Um, it's hard to explain that. I, I don't know. I don't know the right analogy. The only other analogy I can I can give is um, you know when you become a parent. Okay. You, you know, you think you know. Um, you know, you have nieces or nephews, or you babysat or whatever it is, and you think you know. And then when you have a kid, you realize you didn't know. <laughs> and, and I would liken the same thing to becoming a head coach. You, you think you know, but but maybe you don't know until you actually it actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really fortunate. Again, uh, there was a, a pretty smooth transition. I mean, I, I was involved. You know, we recruited all the guys on our team. You know, knew knew the ins and outs of, of the institution, knew kind of where our recruiting bases were, knew, knew a lot of that stuff. And then when you talk about the expectations, maybe or the pressure, again, if uh, Coach Smith is 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 you know my biggest fan, and 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 probably as big a St. John's basketball fan as there mm-hmm. is, and so you know, never once did I feel like he's. I use that analogy. He, he's never once looked over my shoulder. Right. Um, he's always had his arm around my shoulder 
and and that made for a really smooth transition, particularly for a young head coach. Um, to, to your point, you know, you take over the job for a guy they named the floor after. Right. Well, those are big shoes to fill. Yeah. So to have those shoes be from a guy that was so supportive is is it, that's a tremendous asset. So, coach, one of the most popular buzzwords nowadays in all of sports is culture. It feels like every coach, every team preaches culture, culture, culture. But I think that each team and each individual coach have a different definition or idea for what their own team culture is and and just the culture that they're trying to build. So just how would you describe what the culture of the program at St. John's is? It's a good question, and you're right. That is the buzzword. Um, I think it was a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, somebody actually – you know, had asked me to come down and speak at a, at a function and said, you know, we want you to talk about the culture uh-huh. of St. John's basketball. And um, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I didn't, I mean, I thought I knew, mm-hmm. but I hadn't spent uh, a ton of time. So, you, you know, we, we as a staff, we put in a little bit of time to, to sort of evaluate what is the culture and asked our players, you know, we pulled uh, players, former players, managers, uh, trainers, you know, anybody saying, you, you know, describe our culture and, and, you know, sort of four themes continued to show up. And, and I think that that, you know, it helped us articulate what that is. Um, and, and I would say it's, it's connected, um, it's committed, it's consistent, and it's competitive. And those were the kind of the four C's, so to speak, when you, when you really looked at the answers, those were how they got roped into. And um, so, so to answer that question, uh, make it even longer, that's what I think our culture is right now. So, so that kind of brings me to my next question, and, and that all sounds great. But so when you look at those four C's, everyone loves to, to say, oh, the guys are really buying into to the program and everything and to that culture. But as a coach, what are the signs that you look for in, in a player or of the team that they are really you know, buying into those, to those four C's? Like, like what are the things that you look for as evidence of that? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a good question. I, I think you, you know, well, f- for starters, I mean, when, when you talk about um, connected, you know, are are they, you know, do they like each other? Mm-hmm. Are they are they hanging out? I mean, are they going to eat together? Are they laughing? Are they are they hanging in the locker room after practices? You know, all those little things that, that go into camaraderie, team chemistry, um, you know, do you see that? You know, do you feel that? Um, same, same with the coaching staff, you know, same right. thing. Is there that, that feel of, of being connected, um, you know, committed are, are, are guys in the gym, you know, are they, are they in the gym? Are they in the weight room? Are they working hard? You know, as a strength coach or are they, is, is he having to get on guys? Are you, you know, are there guys not showing up? You know, all those things that go into being committed, um, you know, do you have that? And, and, and that, that in many regards is the easiest one I think to gauge, mm. Um, and then consistency, you know, are you doing it every day? Right. Is it, is it day after day or is it catch as catch can, um, same, same with us as a staff, you know, is our approach, uh, back to coach Smith, you know, are we celebrating too much after a win? Are we hanging our heads too much after a loss or are mm-hmm. we, are we consistent in our work? And then, you know, competitive is sort of that catch all that, all those things. Right. And, and then when we get down and, and we get after it, are we, are we, you know, playing at the standard that we've set for ourselves on, on a daily basis? And, and so I think 
again, that you, you can gauge those areas and hopefully you're, you're checking all those boxes. Right. Right. So coach toughness is another one of these buzzword type phrases that is thrown around in sports all the time. And we really saw it a lot with the ESPN airing of the Michael Jordan documentary, the last dance, as people love saying that uh, the players in the eighties and nineties were just so much tougher than the players are nowadays. Right. But however, I, I personally believe that it is that the mental toughness aspect of toughness gets overlooked and, and undervalued a lot as, as a lot of time the truly elite of the elite, whether it's Derek Jeter, Tom Brady, Roger Federer, Tiger, Michael Jordan, all those guys are incredibly mentally tough. And while there's plenty of things you can do to help improve a player's physical toughness as a coach or as a player, you know, you go lift weights and you get stronger. Just what are some of the things that you do to help your players improve their mental toughness? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know that that I have the answer to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I believe, though, that, that you know, it's that old uh, Navy SEAL motto that, that, you know, you don't rise to the occasion, you, you fall to your preparation. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, our approach or, or what we try to do is, is prepare, you know, rel- relentlessly so that, you know, when we're, when we're in the, the, the heat of the battle, um, we, we can fall on our preparation. Right. And I, I think if you, again, you go back to those, those four C's we talked yeah. about. And if those are, you know, there every day, um, and it becomes habit, then, then, you know, in some way, I think that speaks to, to your definition or what, you know, the mental toughness that, that some of that can develop. Right. At least you hope it, you at least you hope it can. Right, for sure. Another interesting thing I noticed while researching for this coach is that in this past season, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, your entire roster was made up of guys from the state of Minnesota, and kind of just in this modern age where I feel like everyone kind of moves around a lot, and, and a lot of people that I know have decided to, to leave home for college. How do you keep so many really talented players in state? Well, you know, we're fortunate we've got a great base. I mean, uh, right now, you know, Minnesota high school basketball is is really, really good, mm-hmm. really good. And so we've been fortunate to to be able to attract, um, you know, really good players from, from our state. And I, I think, you know, for the most part, um, you know, you recruit in your region, right. you know. And, and so it's not to say we haven't recruited you know, the Dakota, we've got, you know, we've had and we'll have North Dakota kids or Wisconsin, Illinois, et cetera. But, but, you know, our bread and butter is certainly Minnesota. Right. And we're able to do well there and, and have done well. And I think it's more just, you know, naturally that's our recruiting base. Right. Um, as much as, you, you, you know, um, as much as anything else. So there is some in-state competition as for the listeners who don't know, St. John's, and St. Thomas are two of the fiercest rivals in all of college athletics. I don't care if you're talking D1, D2, D3. It doesn't matter. You guys are at the top of the list. And I think that the only rivalry that I've highlighted on, on this show is that uh, that is similar in any type of way is Williams Amherst. And just for the listeners who don't know, can you kind of just describe what the rivalry is like between St. John's and St. Thomas and kind of how it's evolved for you going from uh, of from being a player in the rivalry to now a coach in in that rivalry. 
Yeah, I think, well, we had, uh, you know, we played them in football here two years ago, three years ago, and, and Sports Center was out here. Yeah. And doing, you know, broadcast before the game was wild. And uh, Myron Metcalf, who you might know, he's a college basketball writer from Minnesota. Um, he had described the rivalry, I think it was something to the effect of, you know, it's it's Auburn, Alabama, filtered through private school, Minnesota, nice. <laughs> and that's that's as good a description as I've ever heard. Uh Um, So, you know, we don't, uh, I don't know that we necessarily, you know, hate each other to the degree uh, Auburn, Alabama might, but um, we certainly love to hate each other. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Right. So it's, it's kind of, we, 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 we appreciate each other and yet love, you know, love the competition, love beating each other, great bragging rights, you know, you name it. Um, and and it is it's 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 been a it's been a terrific rivalry and, and has been the source of a ton of great memories for tons of student athletes over the years in all sports. Right. So I just want to skip ahead now and, and kind of talk about this past 2019-2020 season a little bit coach. You began the season playing in a showcase tournament type event at University of Wisconsin Superior where you were matched up against another perennial D3 power in Nebraska Wesleyan in the very first game of the season. Just what was that week of prep like going in to face another national powerhouse, but also mixed in with the fact that it was your first game and just naturally there's going to be a level of rust or cobwebs, mistakes, whatever word you want to use, that every team needs to work through at that point of the season? You know, it, it, it was difficult. Um for, for a variety of reasons um for starters because of you know who they are like you said yeah. they, they've been so good and and you know have, have proven themselves to be one of the better teams at our level uh for a number of years now so it starts with that we also you know as you know they moved our, our start date up uh, for division three yep. and and they, that was two years ago well, we hadn't you know because of scheduling this was the first time we've played on that november whatever it was seventh eighth weekend yeah which meant a, a week less of practice than we're accustomed to yeah um so you throw uh one less week and then when you're trying to get ready for nebraska west and they they i think they, they're the top seven guys this past year were seniors yeah um they they play a uh, they zone and and uh, odd three two type zone that you don't see a ton of. They're really long. Yep. Um, have some 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 unique rotations that are that are tough to counter at times. They run primarily at you know Princeton or you know some B line two guard stuff that um, they're really good at. So you, you have some some extra prep there. Um, and then again, you go back. They're 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 they're, they're damn good. Yeah. Um, so that is a tough prep uh, for a variety of reasons and. Um, and it proved to be a, a tough game. We were actually up at halftime. Yep. And then, uh, you know, wheels sort of came off. They went on uh, such a, a run. I, I still have nightmares about that run. Um, so, that, that you know, they, they, they played really well. And, you know, uh, but it was it was a great test for us. For sure. So after dropping that first game of the year to Nebraska Wesley, you guys ran off 22 in a row. And you headed into the MIAC Conference Tournament as the number one seed where after beating St. Olaf in the semifinals, you face off for the third time against St. Thomas in the conference finals. And, you know, Coach, I was lucky enough to play in a few rivalry games during my time at Wesleyan, and there's definitely just a higher level of emotion uh, going into that game. Just how did you help prep your team not only to facing your arch rivals for the third matchup, but also try and control the 
the, the, the guys on the team's emotions and kind of just your own emotions as well. So you don't start the game too hyped and kind of run out of steam or run out of gas as, as the game goes on. Well, I, I think it goes back to, you know, you got to fall on your preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had five seniors uh, this year, really, really good senior class. And, and I think they set the tone and, and it was just, you know, their focus, their, their prep, their approach, um, everybody else kind of fell in line. And so it, 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 we, you, you know, I, it sounds cliche. You just, you try to treat it like any other game. You yeah. know, here's, here's how we go about our prep. We got to go about our prep. And, um, you know, I think ha- certainly having some experience in, in those games, in those, that, that type of atmosphere is beneficial. Um, and so you, you, you know, you know, but ultimately you're, you got to fall back on, on your preparation and hope you're, hope you're ready to go. So you guys defeat St. Thomas in just a really solid victory all the way around. Uh, and it also was in front of a, just, just an awesome crowd that, that February weekend, including what I loved was two guys in the front row who would do, who, who would do push-ups every single time uh, you guys would score a basket, which I thought was just awesome. And all of a sudden, after beating St. Thomas, you were MIAC champions, and you're not only in the NCAA tournament, but as the one of the best teams of the country, you're hosting a pod. And as I've discussed on previous podcasts, but in just in case anyone is is new or listening for the first time, the D3 tournament is organized differently than the Division One tournament, as there are 16 pods of four teams, where one team hosts the other three at their home gym for that weekend of games. And just, I've always been curious, you know, during my time at Wesley, we were fortunate enough to host one of those pods, and it comes, you know, with the different quirks and, and challenges of just, you know, hosting rather than just playing. So just from the perspective of coach, what did it mean to you to be the to be the program hosting that pod? And kind of just what are some of the added responsibilities or challenges that come along with with hosting a weekend of the NSA tournament? Well, you know, certainly I think you 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 want to host. I mean, yeah, I, for sure. I think ultimately um, there, there's there's advantages in that. And yet, uh, ironically, you know, we we hosted three years in a row and we got knocked out in the first round both the the previous two years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I think, you know, part of that is it is different. Um, you don't get to be in the gym, you know, you don't get to use the balls. You, you don't practice at your normal time, you don't, yeah. you know, so, so you're, you're in your home setting and, and you have this, this sort of rhythm you're typically into. And then all of a sudden it gets thrown into a mess and it's, it's, it's nothing like any rhythm you've ever had. Um, and then I, I think it also at times when you're host, it doesn't feel like the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it, it, do, it doesn't. Fe- it doesn't feel special to a degree. It feels normal and yet abnormal at the same time. If that makes any sense, for sure. Um, and so, and then th- this particular year, when you talk about hosting, I, I think there were some. I don't think. I mean, there were some demons there where, in the back of everybody's minds maybe thinking, geez, you know, here we go again. Yeah. For you know, sure. Are going to get up, you know, one of those deals. So all of that is at play. And yet, um, you still, you still want to host. I can promise 100%. you that. Yeah. You, you, you want to host. There's no question. Yeah. From a player's perspective, I, I think what you said about it, just feeling not like the NSA torrent rang true to me as a player. Cause when we hosted, we beat, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was Southern Vermont in the first game. And then we're getting ready to play just an incredible Swarthmore team. In, in the second round, but you know, we go back to the dorms and everyone's excited that, that we won in the hallways, but they're all getting ready to, to go out on a Friday night and they're making noise in the dorms. You're, you're, you're trying to sleep and be like, guys, 
we're trying to go to the Sweet 16 tomorrow. Like, could we just have a little peace and quiet? It's not the same as sleeping in a hotel, but at the same time, you don't want to trade it for anything in the world to play in front of your home fans, in front of thousands of people in the NCAA tournament is one of the best moments I had during my time at Wesley. And so it's a really interesting dynamic there. And kind of just as at the same time that you guys were getting ready for that pod, you know, the world was having other plans during that week. We began to see the damage that the coronavirus could potentially do here in the United States. And schools like Johns Hopkins and Amherst had had closed their gyms to fans for for their pods that weekend. Just was there any talk amongst the team about the virus or was there any concern that week uh, about, hey, should we be playing with with no fans? You know, not not that first week or that first weekend. You know, I, I uh, there that that was just not really on our radar. And, and mm-hmm. I know, you know, uh, hindsight and looking back, it's 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 hard to imagine that even. But, yeah, um, it really wasn't. It just it just was not on anybody's radar. It was it was again business as usual. Right. Um, it was then that following week, um, as we're getting ready to host again, where you start everything. You know, um, starts to become real and, right. and and the dominoes start to fall if you will and then and that's when it really for here you know i would say uh, even the midwest in minnesota that that's when it really was starting to get real i think yeah for sure i was in new orleans for one of my best friends his sister was getting married and i was in new orleans and then we you know we got the update that johns hopkins was closing and just they're such a renowned public health science school we were like wait a second what do they know that that, that we don't know if this is the precaution that they're taking. But, you know, it was interesting because you guys squash those those demons. You go on to win both games against Ripon and UW-Eau Claire and both just really good, you know, games. And all of a sudden you're advancing to the Sweet 16 where waiting for you guys is the fourth matchup against arch rivals St. Thomas. But then at the same time, you're getting ready to play just a fourth game against those guys in the same season. The global situation was changing every day. Just how how did you kind of try to balance that to make it as much of a normal practice week as possible? To while there was all these discussions going on and a realization almost about uh, the virus, and were there any precautions you guys were thinking about taking for for that weekend? You know, no, and, I, and 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 it's been long enough now. I don't remember all those. You have to bear with me. I, yeah, for I, sure. I, I can't remember which night it must have been because uh, I think we were playing Saturday. So I'll say uh, Wednesday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Um, you know, that that week, you know, Monday and Tuesday practice normal, just just like we normally would. And then we were having a, a team uh, meeting slash uh, dinner on. I think Wednesday night it must have been, and at that point, we were starting to get the idea that that uh, okay they're going to limit the number of of people that can attend the game. Okay, and so we made that announcement to our team, you know, which, which again it, it it wasn't you know a, a day before that Monday of that week, you know, we sell the place out, yeah, you know, ten minutes, <laughs> and now all of a sudden we're hearing hey it's limited to you know I think 200, 250 people total, something like that, right? And at that point. I think everybody started thinking and starting to really realize, okay, this, this, this thing is real. It is coming. It is, you know, more serious than any of us anticipated to your point, you know, Johns Hopkins, these, these renowned institutions, they know more about this than we do. And and then obviously um, it must've been Thursday, 
you know, again, we had practice and, or, or we're getting ready for practice, getting ready for film. And the night before, I think it was that, that Wednesday, the NBA yep. canceled the season. And, and at that point, um, I sort of, you, you sort of just knew that, yeah. um, this was coming. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, as in a day, I'm sure you and your players and everyone involved with the St. John's program will always remember within 24 hours after the NBA season, at the, after the NBA suspended season, after Rudy Gobert's positive coronavirus test, the NCAA announced that they had canceled all the winter and spring championships, the spring season. And suddenly, you know, your guys' season was over. Where were you and the team when you found out the news that the tournament had been canceled? And can you kind of just share that reaction? Yeah, I was I was in my office. I, I handle our compliance here on campus as well. So I got that email uh, from the NCAA announcing it. And, and, and uh, as fate would have it, I, it was probably 3.15, 3.30 or so. And our guys were coming up uh, at 4 o'clock, I believe, for, for film. And so, you know we get the news and, and I actually called, uh, you know, John tower, who's the coach at St. Thomas, who mm-hmm. we didn't ready to play just to say, Hey, are, are you, are, are you reading this the same way I am? I yeah. mean, this is over. It's not postponed. It's, I mean, and, and then, then our guys came up and, um, you know, I've, people have, have asked this before, I, you know, that, that, that moment, it was tough because what, you know, what do you say? Right. Um, and, you know, really just took that time to thank our seniors. And, and yet, even in that moment, in my head, okay, we're, we're going to have a chance to, to, to meet, uh, have our exit meetings, we're going to have our banquet, we're going to do all that, set up times for, for the following week to, to meet. And then, you know, the next day, you know, classes are canceled, they're sending everybody home. Right. So, um, you know, if I, if I had to go back and do that over again, I, I'd make some tweaks do some do some things a little bit differently but um you know it, it still is a little surreal right it, it really sure. is and and kind of as you mentioned you know the most shocking thing about kind of just how the virus during that week in march was that everything escalated so quickly to all of a sudden you know you're practicing as normal and then two days later class are canceled and everyone's being sent home and just from a basketball perspective every t- program and every team in the country as being faced with this same issue this this spring and this summer is that now that every player is home, they don't have access to the school gym or the school weight room, and that each player you know kind of has different resources available to them. Some guys may live in an apartment building where they don't have access to a lot of uh, workout equipment or basketball stuff, and while other guys may have a weight room in their garage and a hoop out front. Just as a coach, what did you and your staff do to kind of help create individualized workout plans for the guys on your team to help them get better as they all had different resources available to them. I, I mean, you know, so much of it, as you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's on them, you know, they, they gotta, they gotta find ways. Um, and, and our, our strength coaches, but, you know, I know put together actually for the whole campus put together a variety of workouts you can do at home based on, you know, limited equipment mm-hmm. or no equipment. So you, know, you just, you got to find a way. I, I think that's, um, you know, like anything, there's a, there's also a unique opportunity in this, in this time. Right. And I, I think guys that do find a way to your point have a chance to really, um, make improvements and, and sort of separate themselves from other guys. Um, because it, it is hard. And, and certainly there's going to be some people that don't take 
you know, aren't able to do it or won't do it. And so if you, if you find a way, I think, uh, I think you got a chance to, to really create some separation or close a gap or whatever, where, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So coach, the, the game of basketball has kind of evolved so dramatically over the last five or 10 years that it's almost practically a, a different game completely when, when you watch an NBA or college game from 2012 compared to one in 2020. You know, and, and there could be a valid argument to make for every guy uh, in college or in high school to just shoot thousands of three-pointers every summer as it se- and just work on their shooting as it kind of seems like that's just by far the most valuable skill out there to have. If there was a player in college, high school, middle school who came up to you or wrote you an email and said, hey, coach, I want to get better this summer, but I only have 15 to 30 minutes a day to do it with everything else going on in my life, with everything else going on with the virus and et cetera, et cetera. Just what are the, the things you would tell that player to work on in the time frame they have? I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I, certainly, you know, it, it, whatever you're doing better be game speed. Um, you know, it, it has to be all out. If you've only got 30 minutes, it better be a, a, a damn hard 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess uh, to your point, shooting. I think being able to, you know, how, how quick is your release and can you knock down, um, you know, basically step in, kick out threes. Yeah. Um, you know, find, find those, those shots that you wind up getting a lot and can you hit them and then, you know, finishing around the rim, um, you know, getting into the paint, being able to finish. I, I, to me, if you only have 30 minutes, uh, to your point, you, you know, you still got to score. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if, if you can hit shots, you know, chances are there's a spot for you somewhere. And, um, you know, so, so it, it, I don't think you're ever going to run into a guy that says, geez, I wish you didn't shoot it that well. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't met that guy yet. So I, I don't think you can go wrong by working on your jump shot. So one thing coach is that the NCA has postponed the, for division three, the, the pushback of the, of the three point line, given the virus and just everything going on with budget cuts and stuff that they're postponing that one season. But and we saw this in division one, just the, the farther three point line, the numbers dropped a little bit, but it creates a more space in the lane. Kind of what do you think, or what are you expecting, uh, changes being made to the division three game with this with this farther three-point line coming up i guess not now this upcoming season but the season after yeah but you know i don't even know i mean i think certainly some spacing right um to your point and then i haven't even looked at the numbers but my, my assumption would be we would reflect probably fairly closely to two division one yeah you know so i i don't anticipate a, a dramatic drop um and and certainly i, I cannot see us being um too far off statistically from a significant standpoint from from what happened in division one i would imagine so coach i got one more question here before we get to kind of the fun ones as you know it's extremely important you've mentioned this as it's really important for players to get better in the offseason to develop and, and everyone kind of knows what they have to do if you want to get stronger lift weights if you want to become a better shooter practice shooting but you know it's not like college head coaches can go coach a ton of games in the summer times to practice game coaching and, and you know, different situations in, in a game environment. So I'm just curious, you know, I've, I'm from the player's perspective, I know what players do, but just, you know, what do coaches do in the off season to, to grow and develop and just, you know, improve as, as coaches? Yeah, I, I think, you know, every, every off season, you, you, there's different areas. Um, 
that that you look at that you think either okay what a, how's our team going to look and what are some things maybe we need to do a little bit different um and then you know yourself you know what are maybe those things in and of themselves mean you're gonna you're gonna get better at grow or that hey i i'm not familiar enough about this i need to dive into that particular topic whatever that may be um this offseason for me i've been, been just pouring over a ton of late game stuff mm-hmm. um really wanted to sort of revamp and, and and look through our you know our late game scenario slash packages if you will right and and that's sort of been a i would say the project or, or the main project I've, I've, I've been sort of spending my time on at this point I, I think everybody's is different and um, so no different than, than you guys, you know, you, you, you want to get better. You want to hopefully help, help the team be a little better next year. And so you try to find those areas where you, where you want to clean some stuff up. All right, coach. So as we get towards the end here, I really appreciate all the time. I have five rapid fire questions, uh, oh boy. to attend the podcast. You ready? Uh, I'm, well, I don't, no, <laughs> who's your, who's the best player you have ever coached against? Um, Shannon Brown, Michigan State. What is your favorite drill as a coach? Uh, we call it Clipper closeouts. What? And and what's Clippers closeouts? Yeah, uh, we call it, it's it's more an energy drill. Okay. So it, uh, we certainly we work on our closeouts, but it's it's more about the energy than than anything. Gotcha. Do you have any pregame superstitions? Uh, no. Interesting. Okay. What's the biggest pet peeve you have as a head college basketball coach? People being late. And if you could change one rule about college basketball, what would it be? Uh, No fouling out. No fouling out. Interesting. All right, coach. I appreciate all all the time. As as we do, as always, on the double-double, we give our guest the last words. Do you have anything you want to say to to the great people of Collegeville, Minnesota? No, I, I appreciate the time. It's uh, um, and if I'm talking to the people of Cosville, we appreciate the support. It's it's a great place, and uh, certainly value all, all the support that that they give us and, and everybody around here. All right, Coach. Thanks so much, and I wish you the best of luck uh, going forward. Hey, same to you. Thank, thanks, David. I appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back later this week. Till then, take care and make it a great day.